0: is Crimes of the Centuries. The carnage was like nothing the people of Spring Green, Wisconsin had ever seen. Mutilated and burned bodies were strewn across the property. Some of the victims were still alive, mercilessly so. They emitted inhuman groans, their forms barely recognizable as people anymore. Most would eventually die, though for an unfortunate few, that release from agony would take days. The neighbors who had arrived when they'd heard there was trouble searched the property for a culprit, but found none. So a good number of them broke off to search the fields and forests nearby. Eventually, someone thought to look in the home's furnace, where they discovered a man covered in blood, hiding, hiding he too was moaning, having gulped down muriatic acid in a suicide attempt. With the arrest of that man, Julian Carlton, the mystery of who killed seven people inside of famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright's home was quickly resolved. But another question would linger for more than 100 years. Why did he do it? I can't imagine anyone who hasn't at least peripherally heard the name Frank Lloyd Wright. And yet, this horrific chapter of his life has largely been forgotten. Wright is considered one of America's most prestigious and influential architects. He had likely been born with a different middle name, Lincoln, honoring his father's side of the family. But he had good reason to want to shed reminders of his old man. William Carey Wright had been a fine father until he up and left. He was a musician, composer, preacher, and lawyer who married Anna Lloyd-Jones around 1866. The couple had three children, of which Wright was born first. Some biographies give his year of birth as 1869, but in reality, it was June 8, 1867. Like a lot of people in this era he apparently preferred to pass himself off as a couple of years younger. He'd been born in Richland Center, Wisconsin, and then moved with his family to Madison when he was about 12 years old. This is Cheryl Kiewonen, director of the Mentor Public Library in Mentor, Ohio.
1: During Frank's uh, first decade of life, the family moved around a lot because his father, though a minister, was perhaps not good at keeping the churches afloat. And so they often
0: closed and they moved around. About this time, William Wright sounds as though he went through some kind of midlife crisis. I mean, in fairness, his wife didn't sound super great either, but she at least, you know, stuck around. Anna was apparently very loving toward Frank, but less so toward her other children, especially the girls who she pretty much dismissed as useless. Whatever his reason, William abandoned the family, so Anna was granted a divorce. It appears that after that, Frank dropped the middle name Lincoln and replaced it with Lloyd to honor his mother's side of the family instead. Frank grew up a mercurial sort, as his grandson Brandek Peters would later explain.
2: Most talented, really talented people I know have very high highs and much lower lows than normal people do. And he certainly was that way. If he ever got launched on something severe, everybody was in trouble.
0: As a boy, Frank would work with Anna's family, especially her brother, Jenkin, who owned a farm in Spring Green. Frank wasn't crazy about farming, but he did love the land. He also inherited from his father an artistic flair that might have helped fuel his lifetime passion for architecture though in interviews, he was quick to credit his mother instead. Here, he's being interviewed by journalist Hugh Downs in 1953.
3: When did you first decide to make architecture your life work? Well, fortunately, I never had to decide. It was decided for me before I was born. My mother was a teacher, and she wanted an architect for a son. I happened to be the son.
0: It's tough to know how much that Wright said is true versus just the narrative he wanted to portray. Sometimes things sound a bit too perfectly predetermined. Regardless, Conan said in a talk that his mother was definitely a strong influence.
1: And she felt from the very beginning that Frank was going to be an architect. There's a story she hung pictures of famous buildings in his baby room, but she also gave him these things called blocks. They're still around today. They're like building blocks from the guy who also invented kindergarten. And Frank is quoted as saying, the maple wood blocks are in my fingers to this day.
0: After working as a draftsman for a while and taking civil engineering courses at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Frank moved to Chicago in 1887.
3: I was anxious to be an architect, and so I started out for Chicago three months before I would have graduated.
0: A college dropout, he got work as an architect at Dankmar Adler and Louis Sullivan, the latter of whom would briefly serve as something of a mentor. And Wright even referred to Sullivan as Liebermeister, which was German for beloved master. And you might remember from the episode on H.H. H. Holmes that the late 19th century brought the Chicago World's Fair, which placed a huge emphasis on architecture. Louis Sullivan was one of 10 US architects invited to build for the fair, though his design didn't fit in with the rest of the work. The reigning style combined elements of French neoclassical with Gothic and Renaissance. I mean, basically it was kind of frilly and ornate. Sullivan didn't go for that. As he matured, he developed a motto, form follows function. If some swirly detail didn't have a purpose, he didn't want it on his buildings. The other buildings featured at the fair were all about useless swirlies, which led Sullivan to declare that the event had set American architecture back by 50 years. This did not endear Sullivan to his swirly-loving peers, and he fell out of favor. Frank Lloyd Wright broke away from his mentor to launch his own firm, but never denied that his time with Sullivan helped shape his work.
3: Would you say that any of Sullivan's ideas in architecture influenced you at that time? Naturally. They were influencing nearly everybody in the country. How so? He was the real radical of his day, and his thought gave us a skyscraper.
0: Wright was far more interested in horizontal lines to vertical, so in that way he differed from his mentor. But, like Sullivan, he did nix unnecessary embellishments from his designs. More than that, he tried to create structures that nearly blended in with their environments. He did this by using materials that mirrored the landscape in which he was building.
3: If the thing is successful, the architect's effort, you can't imagine that house anywhere than right where it is. It's a part of its environment, and it graces its environment rather than disgraces it.
0: In 1887, Frank met a woman named Catherine Tobin. She was a few years younger than Frank, having grown up in the Kenwood neighborhood of Chicago. The two met when she was 16 years old and married two years later in 1889. The two used borrowed money to buy a plot of land in Oak Park, on which Frank quickly set out to design a house. The first incarnation he designed was a five-room, shingle-style home that he never really stopped tinkering with until he moved out. In 1895, he expanded the home to accommodate more kids. He and Catherine would ultimately have six, and he also added a studio for himself in 1898. His wasn't the only home in the area he designed. Wright started moonlighting and
1: doing, being the local architect, because it was a lot easier for the people to use him, who lived in the neighborhood, than to go all the way to Chicago and hire some big fancy firm to design their home.
0: Catherine ran the household and reared the children and even opened something of a preschool for other neighborhood kids, too. She seemed genuinely content with her life, despite the ever annoying presence of Frank's mother, Anna, who insisted on buying a house right next door. Even with the extra income from freelance commissions, Wright was always pretty strapped. He just wasn't great with money, which apparently was a trait he shared with his father. He and Catherine threw lavish parties that they couldn't afford, But somehow Frank always managed to skirt serious trouble because he could be quite charming when he wanted to be. In his book, Death in a Prairie House, author William Drennan describes one angry creditor approaching and demanding his pay, prompting Wright to wrap his arm around the guy's shoulder and say, what's a little money between friends? And it worked. Another time, a creditor angrily asked about pay and Wright asked, are you worried about it? The complainant said, yeah, I'm worried. And Wright said, well, then why should I worry about it too? This is the kind of guy Wright was, according to author Paul Hendrickson, who wrote the book Plagued by Fire. He liked
2: letting himself into his houses to begin rearranging the furniture while the owners were out, putting their ghastly trinkets in bottom drawers. Like Thoreau, like Jesus, he thought too many material possessions an unhealthy thing, possibly the only thing he had in common with Jesus.
0: So, you know, he was a super laid-back guy, which always pairs well with public adulation from a documentary.
2: Frank Lloyd Wright was already considered one of the most revolutionary architects in America, transforming the way people viewed office buildings, churches, and homes.
0: Sometime in the first decade of the 1900s, Frank grew restless. He'd been designing houses for people and was commissioned by a man named Edwin H. Cheney to build a home for his family in Oak Park, Illinois. Frank went about designing a brick house that was nestled into the earth so that it didn't rise a full story above ground level. It also featured a low brick wall in the front yard that made it seem untouchable from the street, giving it a sort of fortress feeling. The house was for Cheney, his wife, Mema, and their two children, John and Martha. Mema, maiden name Borthwick, was a cultured and educated woman. She earned her bachelor's degree in 1892 and her master's the following year, both from the University of Michigan. She'd worked for a spell as a librarian in Port Huron, Michigan, a town best known for being Thomas Edison's boyhood home. Maima was nearing 30 when, after years of persistent asking, she had married Edwin. The two decided to have a small home custom built after the birth of their son in 1902. Construction was finished in 1904. What they didn't know was that their marriage was finished, too. It's not clear when Frank Lloyd Wright and May Machini began their affair. What is known is that Frank and his wife seemed to try to resuscitate their marriage with a 1905 trip to Japan, but it didn't work. Rumors were rampant, as Frank and Maima were routinely spotted around town together. The home he had designed for the Cheneys had an open floor plan inside, and the Cheney children reportedly spied with great interest as Frank spooned with their mother in the library. The affair went on for years. Maima must have infatuated him. and She was entirely different from Catherine, who seemed completely content with a domestic life. Nema's world didn't revolve around her children. She continued taking college courses even after getting her master's, which was already an incredibly rare accomplishment for a woman of that era. She also spoke a few different languages, allowing her to work as a translator. She placed great emphasis on intellectual pursuits, and she seemed to inspire Wright's work. During his affair with her, he designed one of the most celebrated homes of his early career. This is Frank Toker, Professor Emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh.
2: The Roby House of of 1909 represents what seemed to be a modernist takeover that was imminent at the turn of the 20th century.
0: That same year, Frank decided he was done with Mama on the side. He wanted her front and center. More than 100 years later, the scandal that caused is still talked about occasionally in newscasts.
1: Wright and Mama Borthwick Cheney abandoned their families and fled to Europe, soulmates unrestrained by societal convention. Wright scholar Ron McRae says the press wasn't far behind.
2: They were good copy. He was always good copy. Someone tipped them off to whoever they were and that they were there together.
0: Both had abandoned their spouses and children which would be somewhat scandalous even today, but on the heels of the Victorian era, forget about it. A story November 10th, 1909 in the Wausau Daily Herald began, not a tawdry elopement, not a mere runaway trip with an affinity, not a common backstairs intrigue, but a spiritual hajira. This is what Frank Lloyd Wright, an Oak Park architect, calls his trip to Germany with the wife of his best friend. I mean, that exaggerates Wright's closeness with Edwin Cheney, who was more an acquaintance than a best friend, but it surely made for better copy. The word hegira didn't make for great copy, but because it is the word that Wright used, it appeared dozens of times in newspapers of the day. If you're wondering, it just means exodus. Back home, Catherine faced reporters with a minister at her side. She did not play the role of scorned wife, but rather said that she was sure Frank would come back to her. I know him as no one else knows him, she said. He loves his children tenderly and has the greatest anxiety for their welfare. I feel certain he will come back when he has reached a certain decision with himself. When he comes back, all will be as it has been. It wasn't just reporters interested in the relationship. Clergy nationwide pointed to the scandal as proof of the moral decline of the country. Frank and Mama’s stay in Europe went on for months. They were together there, but not always physically. Mema worked in Berlin translating poetry. She also translated works by a Swedish feminist named Ellen Key who preached a free love approach to life that certainly jibed with Frank and Maima. For example, here's a quote from Key's work. "'Love is moral, even without legal marriage.'" but marriage is immoral without love. Frank, meanwhile, was also working here and there, including a stint in Florence, Italy. At one point, his oldest son, Frank Lloyd Jr., though he went by Lloyd, even joined Frank at work. Lloyd was 19 by then and a budding architect himself. In 1910, a two-volume portfolio of Frank's work up to that point was published in Germany. It consisted of a hundred lithographs depicting work of some 70 buildings and projects spanning from 1893 to 1909. It was hugely influential in Europe and likely would have been in America, too, if it had ever been released here. After a year with Mama, Frank returned home to Catherine, though not to be her husband again. Rather... He said their relationship would be platonic and he was there exclusively for the benefit of his children. And the truth, according to Drennan, is more likely that Frank needed to get his finances in order and couldn't do that while estranged from his family. He came back just long enough to secure some loans. And then he left again in 1911, this time for good. He defended it this way.
3: You see, early in life, I had to choose between honest arrogance and... uh... Hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change even now.
0: Despite her husband having twice left her for his mistress. Catherine would not
1: grant Wright a divorce. I told you, he had a strong belief in himself. Some of us might call it arrogance, but... So they can't really come back to Chicago. They're shunned professionally and socially there. So this is when Wright's mom, Anna, comes in and says, you know... Remember, you spent your summers at your uncle's place in Spring Green? Why don't you go out there? And that's what they did.
0: Wright bought a hilly plot on which he planned to build a home for himself in MEMA. He set to work designing the house. The townsfolk nearby were not pleased. Here was a man straight up flouting conventional morality. While Catherine refused to divorce Frank, Mama had divorced Edward Cheney, who kept custody of their two children. I mean, this made Mema not only a home-wrecking hussy in the eyes of the town folk, but a terrible mother, too. The people of Spring Green wanted nothing to do with these heathens. A news brief in the Chippewa Falls Herald-Telegram said, quote, The good, law-abiding citizens of Iowa County are, after Frank Lloyd Wright and Maima Borthwick, Free lovers from Chicago who are living in a bungalow at Hillside. This is their second spiritual hijra, and it may be their last if the sheriff does not act quickly. Then it threatens that the ten thousand dollar home where the soulmate and affinity affair is going on might go up in smoke. Later, another news report suggested that Wright and Mema might be arrested. A rumor rebuffed by the district attorney who also dismissed another rumor about a posse of citizens organizing some vigilante justice. The superintendent of the area schools reportedly said, quote, The scandal is bound to have a demoralizing effect on the school children of the community. It is an outrage to allow young men and women and boys and girls to grow up in the belief that a man and a woman can go disregard the marriage bonds. End quote. Frank built his house anyway, and it was gorgeous. He named it Taliesin.
3: It was a kind of refuge at the time. I was getting a worm's eye view of society and needed to get into the country, and my mother had prepared this site for me and asked me to come and take it, and I did.
0: The name was a nod to Wright's Welsh ancestry.
3: It means shining brow. And Taliesin is built like a brow on the edge of the hill, not on top of the hill, because I believe you should never build on top of anything directly. If you build on top of the hill, you lose the hill.
0: Frank and Maymout lived comfortably in Taliesin. As he was with his first house, the one he had built for his family with Catherine, Frank was always futzing with the new one, too. Draftsmen and builders were always milling about. Every summer, Maima would welcome her two kids for a visit, though they didn't love it there quite as much as she did. It was very secluded and pretty damn boring. Still, Martha, Mema's daughter, found a few children in Spring Green whose parents let them befriend the heathen spawn, which helped ease the loneliness. Frank was still a sought-after architect, though he certainly wasn't as busy as he'd been pre-affair. He had developed a catalog of houses built in what he called the prairie style. These were buildings that Wright said were married to the ground. So the emphasis was on the horizontal lines to mirror the low, long Midwestern landscape surrounding them. This was inspired largely by his love of Japanese art and architecture. Sheila Perry, director of the McKnighter Art Museum in Mason City, Iowa, said the Japanese influence in Wright's work is unmistakable.
1: I spent a few years in Japan. I cannot help but see comparisons and similarities. One, the use of tile, the mode of decoration, the strong horizontal, the color palette.
0: Most prairie homes connected indoor and outdoor spaces had open, asymmetrical floor plans that were often dominated by a large central chimney, had brick or stucco exteriors, and featured restrained ornamentation. At least that's what the Chicago Architecture Center says. I don't know a thing about architecture. Wright's emphasis on the horizontal meant that necessary vertical lines, like, say, downspouts, which you need to get water away from your house, were either eliminated or carefully placed so as not to be noticeable. He didn't like gutters because they kind of ruined the look. Slight problem with that, though.
2: His roofs were legendary for leaking. Why wouldn't they have leaked?
0: That's author Paul Hendrickson again.
2: He was always pushing the limits of materials, straining against the form.
0: One of the best examples of Frank's prairie style was taliesin. It was made of three sections, two perpendicular wings connected by a partially outdoor corridor called a loggia. The west wing was a house in itself with three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and one of the coolest stone-walled living rooms I've ever seen. Then you went through the sorta outdoor corridor to the east wing, and there was a long, narrow workroom followed by what was probably meant to be an in-law suite complete with a kitchen for Frank's mother, though at first it was just used for draftsmen and other workers. Near that apartment was the courtyard, which was just one of several outdoor or pseudo-outdoor spaces. It was a picturesque home and an ideal backdrop for Frank and Mama to quietly live on the outskirts of society, though Frank didn't seem content with that. It seemed to bother him that their relationship bothered others. As such, he defended himself again and again, sometimes in letters to the editor, sometimes to reporters writing news stories about Frank and Mema and their so-called love bungalow. I mean, that's seriously what headlines of the time dubbed the place. Frank's defense was, in a word,
2: He basically got up and said, there's one rule for geniuses and another rule for everybody else when it comes to the rules of love and marriage.
0: Frank's relationship with the press was understandably fraught. In one letter to reporters who had gathered at his home, he wrote, you're a fine bunch of dubs. Then he went on a tirade about how grievously misrepresented he had been in the newspapers. He really didn't help his cause, though, because he routinely gave the reporters fodder that kept the scandal in the newspapers. For example, in the La Crosse Tribune on December 29th, 1911, Frank said he was going to visit his wife back in Oak Park and returned with a letter signed by her, by Mayma, and by Mayma's ex-husband Edwin that would, quote, "...release him and the woman to lead lives of their own choosing." End quote. In other words, he promised the press that he would get the jilted spouse's blessings. It never happened. A few weeks later, in January 1912, Wright made headlines again when he applied for a $50,000 life insurance policy that named Mayma as the beneficiary. He told reporters, quote, My wife and children are well cared for. They will never be in want. Now I am thinking of this woman. The moment that my right arm no longer protects her, she will be cast out on a pitiless, fickle world. I want her to be always surrounded with comfort and the artistic, End quote. It seems Wright was pragmatic enough to prepare for tragedy, but he never could have imagined what he had in store. Frank Lloyd Wright and Maima Borthwick lived happily in Taliesin through 1912 and 1913. Come 1914, Wright had landed a commercial gig designing an indoor-outdoor concert garden in Chicago called Midway Gardens. The project first made headlines in the Chicago Tribune in February 1914. The story explained that the site would be used year-round to host a high class of Music. There would be summer and winter gardens, a restaurant, and a series of three terraces. The price tag was to be a hefty $250,000, or about 6.7 million in today's money. There was a catch with the project, which was the deadline. The financiers wanted this thing open by summer, which meant Wright was spending long days and weekends away from Taliesin. And it didn't end when the building opened either. Because of the quick turnaround, Wright, his son John, and a crew of workers kept perfecting the place after it had officially opened on June 27, 1914. Mama certainly had no trouble running the household back in Taliesin. Usually she didn't have many responsibilities anyway, outside of her translating work, but this being summertime, her two children had come to stay at the house. John was 12 and Martha nine. While Wright was never particularly great with money, he did well enough that he was able to hire help. Around the time Midway Gardens opened, he hired a couple of African descent from the Caribbean, or at least he thought he did. It turned out that the husband, Julian Carlton, was probably really born in Alabama, but maybe thought hailing from the Caribbean sounded a bit higher brow or more exotic. Julian was with his common law wife, Gertrude she would cook for the family and the workers, while Julian worked as a sort of butler slash handyman. The couple had been recommended to Wright by a prosperous caterer in Chicago who said the Carltons had worked as servants for his father. He didn't know them well himself, but he said as far as he could tell, they'd done good work. That was enough of a reference for Wright, who hired them in mid-June. Wright's interactions with the couple had been benign, and Julian was a slight man weighing about 145 pounds and standing 5 feet 8. There's only one photo of him in existence, and he is frankly striking. Both he and Gertrude were about 30 years old when they came to Taliesin, and it only took a few weeks before Julian came to hate it there. It surely didn't help that they were the only Black workers in an isolated home, living with people shunned from regular society. It also couldn't have helped that Julian apparently had a history of erratic behavior that Wright had never learned. Julian wanted to leave Taliesin, but he roped Gertrude into saying she was the one who had a problem with the place. In early August, it seems Gertrude told Mama that they would leave the love bungalow From Gertrude's telling, nothing seemed amiss, until August 15th, the eve of their departure. Frank Wright wasn't home. He was back at Midway Gardens, working on finishing touches with his son. When the phone call came telling him there had been trouble at Taliesin, he and John rushed to the train station, only to be told they'd have to wait. The next train to that part of Wisconsin wouldn't be until that night, As they waited, Wright received a telegram that read, Come as fast as possible. Serious trouble. It was signed MBB, as in Mayma, Booten, Borthwick. Soon, Wright spotted Edwin Cheney at the station. He, too, had apparently been told something was wrong. He wouldn't have rushed out for Mayma, but his children, John and Martha, were another matter. When Wright saw the man whose wife he had seduced was also headed to Spring Green, he must have known the news was bad. The two men silently shook hands in a moment of shared terror. When Wright, his son, and Cheney arrived at Taliesin, the scene was unbelievable. Much of the home was smoldering. Bodies were strewn about. From the two survivors and the few words spoken by the mortally injured before they died... Here's what journalists and historians have pieced together. Gertrude had just made lunch for the workers who were in the eastern wing of the house, and for Mama and her kids who were in the western, seated on the screen terrace, where they had a breathtaking view of the Helena Valley. Below them, adding to the view, was a beautiful pool built by Frank. The laborers and draftsmen were Tom Brunker, Emile Brodel... Herbert Fritz, David Lindblom, and Billy Weston, who also had with him his 13-year-old son, Ernest Weston. Most of the workers had been with Wright for years. Billy Weston, for example, was Wright's favorite carpenter. He likened the man to an expert swordsman. It was lunchtime, and Julian went to serve the food. With him, he brought a hatchet. He apparently served the mom and kids their meal first. As Mama ate, He stood behind her, raised the hatchet, and split her skull. She died instantly. Then he killed her son, John. Martha had a chance to run, and so she bolted. Julian chased her down and hacked her, too. She didn't die right away. Next, Julian went to get the workers' food, soup that Gertrude had left simmering on the stove. He walked inside the studio where they had gathered, and he politely served them. No one sensed anything amiss. When he left, Julian barricaded the door. Soon, the men noticed a liquid trickling into the room from beneath the door. Their brains quickly dismissed it as soapy water that Julian must have spilled while cleaning outside, but then they registered the unmistakable smell of gasoline. Outside the door, Julian lit his pipe and dropped the burning match into the gas. The room instantly ignited. There was no TV news coverage at the time, of course, but reporters over the years marking the event's anniversary helped tell the story.
3: Gasoline was poured under a door and he was standing outside with an axe.
0: A couple of the men threw their bodies against the blocked door to no avail. Herbert Fritz, his body on fire, burst through a low window, falling a story and a half below. The impact snapped his arm as he rolled, screaming down a steep hill. Apparently, Julian hadn't counted on the men finding an alternative escape route. So when he realized Herbert Fritz had catapulted out a window, he ran to that exit. Emile Brodel, his clothes aflame, had squeezed through it next, but Julian was there. His hatchet caught the left side of the blazing man's head, killing him. By this point, Herbert Fritz's roll downhill had stopped, allowing him to look up and see the murder of his colleague. Fritz no longer on fire climbed back up the hill to save the others the men still in the room had shifted their frenzied focus back to the barricaded door and finally broke it down their burning bodies spilled into the courtyard Julian rushed back and began swinging he hit Billy Weston twice but didn't kill him his son Ernest wasn't as lucky One after one, the men were felled. Julian then set fire to the home's other wing. One of the more upsetting elements of this massacre was that so many initially survived. Immediately killed were Mema, 12-year-old John, 13-year-old Ernest, and most likely, Emile Bodell. Martha, Mema's nine-year-old daughter, had been hacked three times to the back of the head, a fourth beneath her right eye, Her clothes had been burned away and her arms, shoulders, and left legs severely burned. Yet she was still alive when neighbors, drawn by the smoke, began to arrive. Her last breaths came soon after. David Lindblom, a gardener, had been burned and hacked in the head, yet still managed to get to his feet and run with Billy Weston to summon help from a neighbor that they knew had a phone. That house was a half mile away. When Weston and Lindblom returned, they found a hose and tried to douse the fire. The arriving help relieved the two, both injured but seeming likely to survive. Weston did, as did Herbert Fritz, the man who had first thrown himself from the window. Tom Brunker languished for four days in agony, and Lindblom died soon after. Those two men had lived long enough to identify Julian as their lone attacker. Weston and Fritz did as well. That corroborated what Weston and Fritz told police. Neighbors formed a posse to search the area. Soon Gertrude, Julian's wife, was found hiding alongside the road, having fled when she first saw flames. She was taken to jail as a material witness, but insisted she had not seen this coming and repudiated Julian altogether. The volunteers spent hours searching for Julian before someone thought to check the furnace. That's where they found Julian in hiding, having downed a bottle of acid when it was clear he couldn't escape. Like several of his victims, Julian didn't get the relief of death straight away. In fact, it seemed possible he'd survive. The county sheriff shielded him from the angry mob who seemed to have a lynching in mind. Julian said, they better let me live if they expect to find out something. Frank Lloyd Wright Never understood.
2: For all of his life, for all that I know, he believed that the man who did this terrible act, Julian Carlton, was from Barbados. The first seven words in the Chicago Tribune the next morning were a Barbados Negro with a hand axe yesterday and then splitting the heads in two.
0: To reporters, Wright described the Carltons as wonderful people and workers, he said Julian was well-schooled, intelligent, and pleasant. The couple had been set to quit his employ the day after the slayings, he said, and there'd been no friction about it. Wright said of Julian, quote, he must have lost his mind. In the years since, some have tried to assign motive.
2: Maima Borthwick Cheney, her
3: two children and four workers, were murdered by a house servant who thought the household wicked. Julian Carlton, who knew he was soon to be laid off, decided to take revenge.
2: When a black employee in a white serving tunic went berserk, he was from Backwoods, Alabama, one of at least 13 children with parents who may have been born into slavery. It is not an inconsequential fact, okay?
0: But Julian himself never gave a clear reason why he did what he did. Past employers stepped forward to say, you know, he would get agitated over the smallest things. But they offered nothing that could have pointed to such horrid violence on the horizon. The motive is one of the mysteries that lingers still in this case. The other is a matter of the telegram Wright told reporters he received after the murders. The message reached him at 2 p.m. and its signature suggested that Mama had sent it. "Come as fast as possible. Serious trouble, it read. If Maima had sent that message, she did so before the attacks as she had been the first to die. But if that had happened, why did neither of the survivors know of any trouble brewing? Mema hadn't alerted anyone to problems, and the Carltons went on serving lunch as normal. The existence of this telegram comes from Wright's own mouth, per newspaper reports of the time, but it wasn't saved, and no one else reported having seen it. Historians don't quite know what to make of it. After the deaths, Wright vowed to rebuild Taliesin. It seemed the only way he could cope. He had his carpenters build Mema a simple wooden box, which was placed into a hole at the Unity Chapel Cemetery and covered in the flowers Mema had planted in their garden. Wright insisted on filling the grave himself and refused to mark it with a tombstone. He said, Why mark the spot where desolation ended and began? People at the time seemed to see the rebuilding as proof that Wright was quick to move on, maybe even heartless. But historians say that in reality, He was tormented.
2: In the early days after August 15th, 1914, when his back and neck were sprouting with hideous boils, when he could not sleep or eat and was rising in a little back room in the saved part of Taliesin to take ice baths, this prideful man said to his baby sister, You know, sis, you told me once when I was reaching so high that someday I would pull something down that would destroy me.
0: Some pronounced the tragedy karma. Wright, after all, had flouted God's law by living in sin with one woman while married to another. God must have decided to punish him.
3: He had broken the bonds of society and God's law, and so he deserved what he got.
0: Wright never bought this. To him, the love he shared with Mema was true, and the only way he could live an honest life was to be with her. How could any loving God punish that? Wright continued his work, though historians note that his ethos seemed to change. After the tragedy, his buildings seemed boxier, more fortress-like. They didn't melt away into the environment as much as they did before. And he was done with prairie style. Frank Toker, the professor quoted earlier, said that when it was unveiled, Wright's 1909 Roby House seemed like the start of a modernist takeover.
2: But in fact, this was an illusion. Progressive designers would not wrest power from the conservatives for another half century.
0: And it seemed that every time Wright was poised to break through, another tragedy struck. In 1925, 11 years after he had begun rebuilding the first Taliesin, a fire broke out in Taliesin II. Wright was home this time, so he and his workers were able to fight the blaze, but it still destroyed the living quarters. It also nearly destroyed Wright, according to his grandson, Brandick Peters.
2: My grandmother said she was really worried at that point that they were going to lose him because he simply wouldn't move, he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't drink, he just sat. And finally, uh, she coaxed him out of it by saying, Frank, we can rebuild this place, but we can't rebuild it if you're going to sit here and face the wall. We need you to come out and tell us what to do.
0: Again, he rebuilt. In the end, Frank Lloyd Wright was a lot like his buildings. Interesting, flawed, and whether you're a fan or not, resilient. To research this case, I read Death in a Prairie House by William Drennan dug up contemporary news coverage, watched a few low-budget documentaries, and scoured Wisconsin TV stations for anniversary newscasts. Special thanks to my dad and stepmom, who first told me about this case years ago after they toured Taliesin. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.